0: your host, Alex Garrett.
1: Well, Alex Garrett Podcasting here. Thanks for joining us once again. And on the line with me right now is John Livens. And John is actually Latvian. And I feel like his story of actually fleeing Russian uh, occupation of Latvia can maybe give us hope that Ukrainians can pull through this and are pulling through this. Um, from an on the ground perspective so John Livens you wrote this book An Unexpected Journey about being Latvian about fleeing uh, when the Russians were starting to attack Latvia first of all I, I feel like you could testament, be a testament to the fact that Russia's done this many times before it's not their first time and you were in the crosshairs of one of their other attempts at occupation and whatnot, and invasion well that
0: another aspect to it. A country sometimes can be physically conquered as Russians really overcame Latvia and now parts of Ukraine. But you you never can really conquer all the people's minds whom you have under your rule. And they will always be looking for an opportunity for freedom and reestablish their own national identity. And so even if this Warfare in Ukraine persists, and Russia dominates the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donetsk Basin, which is an industrial base. There will always be Russian—I uh, mean resistance against the Russians, even though there might be some Russian stooges. So it could be a long process, even if temporarily Russians gain a foothold in Ukraine. That's on a positive side. Is this in the Russian nature is the other question. And I would have to say it is very true because I would also refer you to an article that's written in Wall Street Journal recently by Michael Khodorovsky, who was the head of one of the biggest oil companies, Yukos, until he got thrown into jail by Putin for 10 years. Now he lives in Germany. And his point is, Dealing with Putin, and I think he means the Russian mentality, is like dealing with bandits. In other words, if you give in, they ask for more. You have to have a firm stand and gain their respect in the beginning. And I think that is to a great benefit to the Ukrainians that they're putting up a firm stand. The only thing, in my opinion, that's been missing is the Western powers, and particularly the United States, could have, Provided military help in January and February of this year, when it became obvious that Russians concentrated their troops across the border, that would have maybe deterred or avoided this initial bloodshed.
1: John, you are a uh, escapee, as I mentioned. You fled Latvia as Russia was, uh, you know, destroying that country, and you made a life of for yourself in the United States. So. Uh, Obviously, it impacted everybody, what we've seen in Ukraine, but I've got a feeling this really hit home for you watching it unfold, and that's why you're so passionate to tell your story now.
0: Yes, I'm very passionate about it. (laughs) Uh, Of course, the Russian, I should say at that time, the Soviet occupation happened when I was about six years old, and it was just amazing how they took over the country and nationalized everything. Everything. We had our homes and several of them and land, and suddenly the people came around and said, that's not yours, it belongs to the state. That included the furniture, except what was in one or two rooms left. So that gives you the idea of the Soviet system. I think the uh, current Putin system is sometimes slightly different. They just steal it for the state. If they don't like an organization, they make sure that some of his buddies take over. I think there is something, I hate to say, Ingrained in the, nation, uh, in the Russian nature that they really do not understand democracy and freedom. Now, they are individuals who do that and they suffer greatly, but somehow there is seems to be a mass psychosis. If somebody's in power, there's a great reluctance to oppose it. And that, you know.
1: The oh, I see what non- you're saying. Uh, that they just they, they kind of go with it because. Yeah, exactly. You know, there were generations, this is a generational gap now. I mean, the, the younger Russians are trying to tell people in the older generations of Russia this is happening and they don't want to believe it. Uh, did you find any actual Russians come to the aid of Latvia or was it even worse back then? Like, was there even no support from the Russian people for Latvia back then? Well,
0: that's a very interesting question. There was a, a Russian minority in Latvia, and that minority came after the Russian Revolution in 1917 to 1920. Those were the what they call the white Russians who escaped the Soviet rule. They, of course, uh, did not like the Russians, and they pretty much adapted the Latvian way. So they were quite sympathetic and understanding. However, uh, the other Russians that are now in Latvia is about a 23% minority, they are descendants of the children of Russians who settled there. And the Russians who settled there were actually Russian bureaucrats because the living conditions in Latvia were better than the Soviet Union. Now, the interesting aspect of this is we talked about generational change is that the second generation, the children of those Russian bureaucrats and communist officials, a large majority really don't care for Putin that much. Mm. They like the Western ways. They like to be part of the European Economic Union, and they would like to emulate Bill Gates rather than Putin. So Mm. there is a transition among the younger Russian generation to Western values, but it's a very slow process. I don't think we'll see, I don't think in my lifetime, I will see that taking place in the former Soviet
1: Union Russia. So you were, I want to get back to your story, because you were talking about how you made it from this destruction to now a life, a full life in the United States. So take us through, you're six years old, and all of a sudden you're fleeing, you're coming to America, and what do you have to say about making a life here? Was it difficult at first? Was it kind of an easy fit for you? Like, what was the uh, adaptation to America, if you will, after fleeing Latvia? Well, uh,
0: first, uh, from Latvia, we managed to escape before the war ended to Germany. So I spent about five years in Germany at the end of World War II and then. Uh, Germany, of course, was a turmoil. Uh, There were a lot of refugees from everywhere. And uh, so I missed about two years of schooling. Then we had the opportunity to come to the United States in 1950, and that was uh, quite a change, Uh, Quite a change for me because my English was mediocre, to say the least, probably very poor, what I learned. Plus, I had missed two years of schooling. There were no schools during the war. And uh, the other thing is, coming to the United States, uh, my first impression was that the people were extremely generous, kind, and considerate. But they were very naive. They did not understand the international events and the danger that the Soviet Union proposed. So uh, I basically gave up. I was always interested in sports and other things. I gave up everything and focused on studying. So after this gap in education, I was put. uh, I went to the headmaster of the Framingham High School and showed the record. And he said, I really don't understand what to do with you. You know, you missed two years of school. You were about 16 or 17, I guess I was by that time. Uh, We'll put you in the senior class that was in January, and uh, you'll finish the remaining five months, and then you repeat the year. Well, I did not like to repeat the year, Mm -hmm. so I
1: studied all the time. Even though my English was mediocre, I managed to finish and graduate with honors. And then I went on to college. John, that's what I was going to ask you the language barrier, also, as you're trying to make up for lost time, did that frustrate you at all, or or how how was that?
0: Tremendously. Tremendously, because I I always have been interested more in the social sciences than than, uh, the science itself. And so I could understand the humanities and all those subjects, but my expression was handicapped by lack of knowledge in English. So it was very frustrating. At the same time, the headmaster put me in physics class thinking that this would be the best. I'd never taken physics before. I'd never been in the chemistry lab. I'd never been in the physics lab, and that turned out to be the most difficult course. So it was very frustrating uh, not to have command of English. And from high school, I was very fortunate to win a scholarship to Boston University, which you know, the scholarship was essential for me sure. to continue education. And uh, but I always were seeking was seeking excellence. so after a year, at Boston University, I was very fortunate. I would attribute this probably to a miracle or even divine guidance to be able to transfer it to Harvard.
1: Unbelievable! I, as I can't help but ask this, but as you're going through all this success and everything, did the trauma? What was there? PTSD? Was there trauma, or did America help you ease the trauma that you clearly had in Latvia uh, during that Russian destruction?
0: It will be surprising to you and maybe your listeners. I had no trouble. Huh. <laughs> so so we were lucky to have escaped and we were in Germany where there were millions of refugees in terrible conditions. but we received some support from the International Refugee Organization. and we felt relatively safe in the American occupational zone. So safety was paramount and the avoidance of the Soviet. Persecution, so, uh, so, so. Uh, actually, we were quite happy. That the trauma really did not bother me much. I would say the only thing that would bother me is that most American people did not understand the danger
1: of Soviets. By the way, congratulations on Harvard. I want to find out what happened after that because obviously you're a Harvard. Yeah. You you did graduate Harvard, right? Yes. Well. Uh... Um, I'm delighted to tell this story because I hope this is an inspiration to some of your listeners.
0: So with, so i wanted to go to Harvard from uh, uh, Framingham High School, and the guidance counselor says, your English is quite poor. You'll never really get in, maybe, and never really could make it. And uh, so I went to BU for the first year where they had a fair number of foreign students. And after the first year, I decided I still wanted to go to Harvard, and so I applied as a transfer student to Harvard. Now, mind you, to get into as a transfer student, as I said, I will repeat myself, is almost a miracle. These days, 3.5% of all those who apply to Harvard get admitted, and only a fraction of 1% uh, transfer students. And transfer students replace those who drop out due to illness and other family problems. So I was fortunate among those. The other problem was that uh, at the end of my BU, I won the highest scholarship they had, Professor Augustus Haubach Scholar, which guaranteed me full, full expenses for undergraduate and two years of graduate work, so it was a very comforting scholarship to have, particularly I did not have to rely on financial help of my parents, and they said their income was certainly meager. So I gave all that up, and I went to Harvard, and they didn't offer me a full scholarship. They told me, "Look, we'll give you some money for the first term, and then you have to maintain a certain average, work in the library, and then if you do it, we will offer you a scholarship." So I was under tremendous pressure, and I was
1: very lucky to succeed in that effort. And what did you and what did you take your education and do with it? Like what? Are, how, what did you become? What are you today? And and uh, you mentioned your parents. Touch on that a little bit, because everybody who has fled the Soviet Union or has fled any kind of Russian occupation always gives credit to their parents, I find. So kind of mixing both questions here, what did you do after all your education and uh, and grow a business and whatnot? And talk about your parents as well. Well, I think I think the parents and the family
0: support is really the key element in my life. Uh, I don't know whether you know what happened to my father, but I will briefly go back in the past. When the Soviets came in Latvia, and that was in 1941, our family, my mother, my father, and my sister and I were on the KGB, that's their secret police wanted list. And on June 13th, we were supposed to go to the capital city where we also had a house to visit my father, who had been dismissed from his fairly important government job. And so my mother called the superintendent of the building, as she usually does, does, and said, look, we're going to be arriving there in the evening of the 13th, uh, you know, even though we had to give up some of the space in the house to a person who was put in as a borderer, we will be there. So we're ready to leave in the evening of the 13th to go to Riga to be with my father, as we had planned. In the last moment, my grandmother, who had diabetes, said, please do not go. Please do not go. I don't feel too well. I just don't want you to go. Would you spend a night with us uh, and go the next morning? So my mother says, well, you know, uh, the grandmother is pleading. We will. We will do that. So the next morning, Early in the morning, my mother calls my father and tells him we're taking the first train at 5 o'clock and cannot reach him. Finally, the boarder of the house picks up the phone and then says there was a KGB arresting my father and they were looking for all of us because the superintendent building told the secret police that all of us are going to be there and they would arrest all of us together. Mm. Well, by sheer happenstance, we just delayed our departure for one night, and this is how we escaped the Soviet arrest. My father was deported to a gulag, and I where he passed away in rather dramatic
1: circumstances. Oh, well, I'm sure you live on in his memory. I mean, not to gloss over, but I can't imagine going through that. So I, I guess he's obviously with you, though. Every day you're an American now, right? You feel his presence yeah. with you. Do I feel threatened? No, you feel his presence with you no matter what. I guess. Well,
0: I feel the presence, uh, actually, more so of my mother, who took charge and made sure that we we immediately had to escape from our house, and we and 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 she was just the guiding light in our lives. And she remarried, and that worked out well too. But but she really made my education, and my life possible. I own. Death to her, and a- any of the people who have read the book, most of them at least, offered comments
1: said that a real hero of the book, an unexpected journey, is my mother, and that's very true. Well, and it was just Mother's Day, so it's funny we, we talk about that. And so, what lessons did you learn from your parents through all of this? Uh, even your father, who put a you know who who did his best, I guess you'd say, even then, if it. Ended in tragic death. He did everything he could for you guys. So, what was the lesson you learned from both your parents?
0: Well, uh, I had really, uh, you know, as I said, my father basically passed away when I, when I passed away, was arrested uh, at age seven or six. I was. I could describe the circumstances of his death, which I found out many years later when somebody managed to survive the gulag where he was way up in Siberia. And that's kind of a sad story, but since we are on the subject, I will be glad to share it with you. My father was arrested and shipped in a freight car with another umpteen thousand people to a place in Siberia where they could access the place only by a river ferry, so they couldn't escape. They lived in these gulags. And they were dying like flies in the winter of 1941, which was one of the most severe cold winters. They all knew that they were going to be pretty much die. And so my father got together with three of his friends from Latvia and um, managed to trade whatever they had, few valuables like wedding rings with a Russian guard for vodka, sat outside the barracks, had a toast, linked their arms, and they were found the next morning frozen to death.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> Rather sad, but that's what happened. Wow. So, um, so from that point on, uh, my mother played a very significant role in my life. And what I've done is actually the editor of my book uh, asked me to summarize the lessons learned. Now, you know, I will not read their, their basically two 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 and a half pages, but the first one I can read it for you and says this we as humans cannot always change or control our circumstances we cannot anticipate all the obstacles in our path Hmm. however we can decide our attitude and actions and overcome difficulties we face this will define our character value and faith the unconditional love and support of a family makes makes obstacles easier to overcome, and these are values that parents can pass on to the next generation. Moreover, faith, no matter its form, is of immeasurable help in times of crisis. Mm. You must cultivate and nourish it throughout life, in turmoil of war, people who prayed and believed faced imminent danger with calmness
1: and mortality, inspiring others. John, this is uh, this is actually really helpful and, and inspirational, as you say, um, to know that faith got you through watching your country become war torn. I mean, that's and I feel like we're seeing that with Ukraine right now. But let's yes. focus on on life after Harvard. So, uh, what did you end up doing? I know he. You obviously wrote the book, but what are you doing right now uh, as an American well, let citizen? me let me just fill in the details after, after Sir? Harvard. Sir? After Harvard, I went to Harvard
0: Business School. Uh, again, you know, it's not easy to get in, but it's easier from Harvard. And then I finished first year of business school, and I re- received a notice that I was going to be drafted. Well, I had no choice. I was I certainly felt strongly that uh, I own obligations to the United States, but I didn't feel like a private uh, in the Army so I went up flying uh, three years in the navy from different aircraft carriers and after that I came back uh, got my MBA at Harvard and uh, was very fortunate to have a satisfactory and successful
1: career in the investment management business in Boston Wow and so you stayed in, in finance or did you did you move on from that industry
0: no no was, uh, I was with an old, old line, prestigious investment firm, which was sold in the '80s. And then I—that made me financially independent. And then I uh,
1: eventually became president of a much smaller investment firm started by a friend. But that really was sort of—and uh, you're—you're out of Florida uh, gave you're out of Florida, I believe I read, that you're you calling us from Florida?
0: Well, we have a place in Florida and a place in New Hampshire in the Lakes region.
1: Very cool. You know, I, I couldn't help but touch on something earlier that you mentioned how American hospitality and, and the way they welcomed you here. Obviously, you love America. So this generation, we're seeing people who want to protest everything about America and want to burn, you know... It, they, there's a there's a faction that doesn't like America. And, you know, people that flee war-torn areas kind of also remind this generation of Americans, this is a great place. Why do you want to tear it down and stuff like that? I don't know if you feel that kind of way or notice that, but I just, it feels like today's American kids anyway don't appreciate it here enough. Well, I think these views really actually hurt me person- uh, personally.
0: Because the United States offered to me so many opportunities, not only to me, to everyone. And uh, I don't understand that attitude. I think it stems perhaps to too much government benefits, that they don't have to strive for anything, and they are entitled to these benefits. And if they appear to me disgruntled, they will receive more. I think it's it's it's. I think it comes back all the way to the structure of the family. If you look at the statistics, the divorce rates and separate families and families are dis, that are dysfunctional proportionally have substantially increased during the last decades. So, without a solid family basis, and that cuts across all racial uh, groups, uh, you really have destroyed some of the fundamental values in the United States. The question is, how do you restore them? Well, one is education, and the educational system actually further destroys it. I'm quite familiar with the educational system because I have three grandchildren, well, three half a dozen grandchildren in different schools, and also I spent about a dozen of years interviewing for Harvard College. So.
1: Oh, man, so you could talk about that. Because, you know, a big facet of Soviet was... Control education, and you know I don't want to say we're getting to that, but it does seem like with the attacks, parent, uh, um, you know, PTAs and and boards are getting, you know, parents are getting from even the DOJ. Um, is it starting to feel like America uh, leadership here wants to take over the kids, or is that a myth that the conservatives are trying to push? I I think you you really got a point. The Soviet
0: approach was to education was brutal and obvious. For instance, when I went to Soviet-controlled school, we had a corner in, a, in the, each room called Red Corner where they described the great achievements of the Communist Party. And furthermore, they encouraged young children to report on their parents or family members' counter-revolutionary activities. In other words, if they did not believe in the Soviet dogma were a threat to the government. So the children were basically asked to spy on their parents. Now, if you look at the current trends now, they are not that extreme, but if you look at some of the school systems, for instance, young children can receive indoctrination (laughs) and vaccines and everything without their parental consent. To me, the first responsibility of parents is where their children and they can decide what's best for their health what's best for education but the teachers union in my opinion has taken over the over that function furthermore that has actually spread to private schools where some of my grandchildren go so yeah. i think the educational system here has become very ideologically oriented and since it's to some degree based locally it's very difficult to change we had seen some progress being made in Virginia where the governor got elected by uh, allowing parents to have some influence over the local school, bo- school boards. And I
1: hope that that trend continues. You know, it's funny. They actually sued Youngkin. that The school boards did or whoever. Not the school boards, but the schools themselves sued him over the fact he got rid of the mandate for, you know, masks and vaccines. I thought that was kind of bizarre because we're supposed to be a free nation, I thought. Well, I think this is so true, and, and, you know, I can
0: cite a case. I would almost tempted to use a name, but maybe you better avoid it. My, one of my grandsons goes to a very fine private school in outside Massachusetts boarding school, and the headmaster whom I met is a nice kind of weak guy, not a leader, and he felt, because of the pressure of some minorities that are not really a minority, I mean, I'm talking political minorities, not racial minorities, he had to introduce some of these radical ideas in the curriculum, like mm. the 1619 and all this kind of stuff. So so what I'm saying is it's not necessarily union. The leadership of some of the schools is not reasserting its independence and not recognizing their responsibility toward the parents, but thinking in terms of their responsibility toward the teachers' union.
1: John uh, Livens is with me now. He's an actual uh, escapee. He he fled his hometown of Latvia when he was a boy uh, with his mother and and, and his family uh, and then came to the U.S. and obviously has made a life for himself here after war-torn Russia created a war-torn Latvia. And to survive that and tell your story today, I'm I'm very appreciative. Uh, But I also want to know how timely— and how fitting do you feel that your book is right now, Unexpected, an unexpected journey, given everything, not just what we're seeing in Ukraine, but you're also talking to the things we're seeing in the United States. So it feels like your book covers a lot of facets that people need to read up on right now if they want to get a further um, historical perspective on what's going on.
0: Well, thank you for those comments. I think the book was originally intended, the chronology, what happened there. But as I started writing... I said, what does it mean, what all of us can learn? And maybe if you read my story, you will look at your own life and maybe can make some changes. And one of the aspects would be, for instance, the importance of parents, the importance of faith, and the importance of education and hard work and so forth. And So I want people to read the book and not only think about what happened to me, but what is happening to them, And what can they do to make the
1: life better for all of us? John, and that's beautiful. And by the way, faith, another thing that's kind of being ripped away little by little. And, you know, it's up to conversations like this to keep faith alive, I feel like. Um, What's your Twitter? Do you have a Twitter, Facebook? Is there any social media we can follow At. Well, you
0: know, I'm a generation that does not know Facebook, does not use much Facebook. No Twitter so uh, maybe I should change my ways uh, I, 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 in the back of the book I said that uh,
1: you can contact me at my email well tell us your email <laughs> address which is hello at
0: john dot com hello john initial h l i v e n s dot com but uh, if there
1: is a need, I will I will work on Twitter and the other aspects. Well, John H. Livens, thanks for, uh, can I say, living it up with me for a little bit here on my podcast. And um, I would love to have you back on because you've got a a lot to say, and I, I feel like it's going to help maybe change the conversation um, if we get you on more. So I'd love to have you back. Thank you very much, Ellie. Hey, I'm Alex Garrett, your host for this episode. And this podcast specifically focuses on topics that should be trending. Oh, if the shoe fits wear we... wear that shoe proudly. We've just heard from a Latvian-American that actually fled Soviet occupation of Latvia and uh, made a life here in America. And now we come back to stateside and figure out more ways that Americans can support Ukraine. And with me once again is Harris Godfrey. Harris, last time we talked, we discussed the Thank You Ukraine project and uh, even the patrol pause. And so uh, Godfrey Harris from Harris Reagan Management, how was that project? And what are you guys up to now to support Ukraine? And and what are you encouraging Americans to do right now? Uh, Good point.
2: Um, I just... uh... Do a little bit of correction. The name is Godfrey Harris. Harris is the last name, Godfrey the first. Uh, sometimes lots of people make that mistake. Um, the uh, petroleum pause um, was a qualified success in from our standpoint. Uh, we got a lot of attention. We got a lot of uh, support. Uh but as far as we could determine, and we made a hell of an effort to uh, try to determine whether or not any of the consumption, the gasoline consumption statistics could verify it, we couldn't find any statistical evidence that the petroleum pause had uh, a impact on the market. So we had a psychological... Um, triumph, uh, we did not necessarily have an economic benefit at the same time. So rather than uh, repeat the effort, because we cannot track whether or not uh, it makes a difference, we move to another uh, angle. And that angle uh, revolves around the fact that the United States is the uh, longest continuous democracy in the history of the world. No other country, no other society, no other nation has been able to change its government peacefully uh, and consistently as we have every four years since uh, uh, 1792. And uh, that makes the United States the champion among democratic countries in the history of the world. And it means that we have exceeded uh, the Greeks, the Brits, uh, and the Romans, and every other society that has maintained a democratic basis for uh, their governance. Uh, The 250th anniversary of America's democracy occurs in 2026, when we will commemorate the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We argued in a letter to uh, the President's Chief of Staff that this occasion uh, demanded the uh, full attention of the United States government. It was worth celebrating. And that there was no better way to commemorate the 250 anniversary than uh, showing American support for Ukraine. And the reason for that was we argued in our letter.
1: uh, To to Ron Klain, by the way.
2: Yeah, Ron Klain that uh, Ukraine citizens were standing up, were putting their lives on the line to protect the concept and the practice of democracy within their borders. And that while it was all well and good for United States citizens to uh, stand up for the national anthem to put their hands over their hearts when the flag was raised to uh, salute the flag in school, that was all rote. There was nothing quite like what the Ukrainians were doing to support the concept of democracy. And if we were the oldest continuous uh, democracy in the world, we needed to show our support for Ukrainians, and that's what we suggested under the leadership of the president, uh, starting now and continuing to 2026, the United States needed to do. And so uh, we posted that uh, letter to uh, Ron Klain, um, I think a week ago, uh, maybe 10 days ago, we are waiting for the White House reaction.
1: And we can find that at americasgroup.com. Is that correct? Did, uh, did you post no, the letter online? or?
2: No, no. We, 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 uh, we are posting the letter online. I did not want to post it uh, when we sent it. I thought that would be impolite. I thought we had to give the president's staff a chance to receive it and react to it before we posted it. But if we... Uh, But when we post it, it will be on the uh, website of the organization uh, that I co-chair, which is called the Semi-Sesquintennial uh, Citizens Council. Uh, And that is a group of us who were involved in the bicentennial celebration in 1976, who have urged Washington uh, to use the 250th anniversary. We had used the 200. Uh, We thought the 200 was not as uh, meaningful as it should have been, mainly because after Watergate in 1974 and Nixon having resigned, uh, the American public was not much in the mood to celebrate anything. And so 1976 was not as powerful a statement on behalf of democracy as we thought it could be. And those of us that were deeply involved in the planning for 1976 and were some of us disappointed by the end result began working on uh, programs for 2026 and uh, urging first Mr. Trump, now Mr. Biden.
1: Uh, well, you know, Godfrey, real quick, if, if you looked at the online, though, the fireworks display for that, you know, Reagan went to the Statue of Liberty in 76. And I saw it was, it looked like a pretty big event anyway, but you're saying it could have been bigger in 1976.
2: Well, uh, I'm turning around. It wasn't Reagan, by the way. It was President Ford who was presiding over the government uh, oh, in '76, July 4th. Right? 1976 celebration. Here was the problem. There was, uh, Ford went to Governor's Island to watch the parade of small ships in New York Harbor. In uh, uh, 1826, on the 50th anniversary uh, of the uh, American Bicentennial the uh, U.S. government began building the Washington Monument. Um, the, uh, sorry, uh, yes, building of the Washington Monument in 1876 on the hundredth birthday of the United States. They start. They laid the foundation for the Statue of Liberty, which had been the gift of. The people of France, again, to celebrate America's role in creating the concept and the government, democracy. And the kids of the United States in 1876 contributed their pennies, which went to the building of the pedestal, which is still on Liberty Island in New York Harbor, on which the Statue of Liberty was placed, and in fact, it took about 10 years for the uh, Statue of Liberty to be fully erected. It took about 20 years to complete the Washington Monument, but what we were saying to the world in 1976, and again saying in 2026, this event that makes the United States the historic leader in democracy, deserves uh, something more than the transitory nature of some uh, fireworks at night, one night, come and gone, forgotten. We believe that something should be left in place to remind Americans of the importance. And what we are suggesting now is some kind of partnership with the people of Ukraine starting in uh, 2022 and lasting to 2026 to demonstrate that democracy is worth fighting for, democracy is worth protecting, and democracy is, uh, as imperfect as it is with all its flaws, still a, uh, the best form of governance that man has yet created.
1: Well, this is a uh, this is powerful stuff, and and it, it's hopeful because I feel like right now our democracy, all three levels of our government, even SCOTUS, is not secure. We don't have a secure government right now. So it could rallying around Ukraine uh, help build our own house again. I feel like our house is Precisely. in such disarray. Exactly, you got it right.
2: That's what. That's the. Uh, underlying theme before, uh, for our letter to Ron suggesting <laughs> that uh, the, uh, the administration take a strong position. Now, there's another side of it which uh, your listeners may or may not be interested in, but in the Trump administration on January, uh, sorry, December 31st, 2020. President Trump signed a law which assigned the 2026 commemoration to a committee in Philadelphia. Those of us that had worked the national bicentennial in 1976 were heavily opposed to that law, but for political reasons, Mr. Trump signed the law, and now Philadelphia has sole responsibility for the United States commemoration in 2026. We think that's wrong. We think for many reasons. One, uh, the law holds that the only financing for the um, Philadelphia group uh, must come from private sources. We think that since the committee is private, not uh, government-made, that it sets up some enormous conflicts of interest, potentially. Two, because it's private-funded uh, for Philadelphia, the bulk of the organization and the bulk of the activity is going to be in Philadelphia. Well, okay, Philadelphia was at the birth, but the country now stretches way beyond the imagination of the people who met in Philadelphia in 1776, and uh, people all across the country have to participate because in the uh, semi sesquicentennial 250 anniversary, because uh, it is uh, the citizenry that will keep the democracy, as you pointed out, strong and vibrant. It is not some small group in Philadelphia who want to profit from uh, the goo guys, uh, T-shirts, uh, hat pins, and the like, that is the usual dross of these kinds of committees. Finally, we said to Ron Klain, look, we know from our experience in, 17, seven, uh, sorry, in 1976, that immediately thereafter, a number of other 250th anniversaries occur. Uh, we know the 250th anniversary of the first Congress, of the Constitution, uh, of the uh, Louisiana Purchase march in order after the, uh, the, the anniversary of the founding of the country, and we said instead of remaking the wheel, each time one of these major commemorations arise, we recommend that responsibility for commemoration uh, be placed with the National Endowment for the Humanities, a federal agency that existed uh, back to the time of, uh Kennedy, and that the responsibility for planning these events uh leaving uh lasting memories of these events be left to a permanent staff and not remade with all the mistakes and all the wasted costs of creating a new committee with each celebration that comes
1: now I so don't know if. The, that, uh, uh, oh. Is this the committee that's had some issues? Because I know that there were some issues where people actually left the the 250th anniversary committee because of some, I don't know, situations within the committee. Is this the same one that you're talking about? Or is this a different one? I don't know if you've been following that or not. But there have been a few Uh, women that left the committee because of inappropriate conduct. That's what I was reading anyway. uh,
2: There has been some shifting around on the. Uh, Philadelphia committee. I'm not aware of any scandal or any uh, taint of uh, impropriety touching on uh, the current committee in Philadelphia. Uh, What we learned in 1976 was uh, the first effort by President Nixon uh, to do some planning, Uh, Nixon appointed a presidential commission. Uh, Wally Sterling, former president of Stanford University and subsequently chancellor of uh, Stanford, um, was the chairman of that commission. But eventually uh, a, um, a, an administrative agency was formed, the American Bicentennial
0: Administration, and that group then uh, parcelled out about
2: eight million dollars uh, in support for local organizations that were planning their own events, and basically everybody enjoyed and recognized the two hundredth anniversary was a special July fourth. But here in Los Angeles, it was a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, begin and end uh, fireworks afterwards. But uh, except for the playing of uh, the uh, Stars and Stripes Forever by Sousa, at the end of that concert, it could have been any other Saturday night concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm -hmm. We want the 250th to be special. We think it could be special if we married American interest with what's going on in Ukraine. It would not only give Ukraine a major boost, by bringing the United States government into more consistent support, but it would bring the American people to understand what other countries go through to protect what Americans take for granted. And we believe if they take it for granted for the next four years, Mm -hmm. what will happen is exactly what you stated, that the shaky nature of our democracy— the great cleavage that exists between those on the fringes on the right and the fringes on the left, the distrust that is so clear and obvious in the activities of both uh, pro-abortion and anti-abortion groups with the leak of the Alito Uh uh, draft, uh, uh, draft opinion. So... We think American democracy needs a heck of a lot of repair, needs some attention, and we think the easiest way to uh, understand the value of what we have here is to look to see what the Ukrainians are doing over there to protect their democracy. And before we screw up ours to where we can't bring it back together— We need to take action now and start to regain some of the trust that uh, we have lost over the last probably 25
1: years. Godfrey, this is uh, insightful because just as we're talking, the Biden administration is redeploying service members to Somalia. And this is another example of how outward thinking this administration seems to be or outward focused. They're not focused on the inward situation, and they're certainly not focused on Ukraine as much. I mean, they're giving them aid, and, and we want them to do more, but the inward focus on America is not here. It's just kind of, and you might disagree with my I don't sa- know. I don't know if
2: you've noticed. I don't know if your listeners have noticed, but on Meet the Press yesterday, they went over the 10 uh, issues most concerning Americans based on polls Uh, They had commissioned. Ukraine doesn't even show on uh, the list of 10 issues. At the top is the economy, and then uh, there's the abortion issue, and then uh, there are uh, the uh, climate change and all the other issues that we need to deal with. But Ukraine has dropped off the list. And... Uh, that strikes me uh, as as uh, uh, cruel that Americans uh, have lost patience with what's going on in Ukraine and and what might come out of Russia's result of the decision of Finland and Sweden yesterday yeah. to apply for NATO membership. Uh, this requires some uh, some leadership, but unfortunately, in my opinion, and worth another debate and another discussion, but Mr. Biden, who's a very sweet fellow, has surrounded himself with a staff in the White House that uh, came to him in 2008 when... Uh, Uh, from when he went from being a senator to being vice president. And these guys have been on his staff ever since. And they are very good at analyzing issues, giving him options, but they have no experience, we are finding out, Mm. at running anything, at managing any problem. And as a result, uh, Mr. Biden's popularity, his trust by the American people in managing the economy as we uh, face inflation, another one of the ten that doesn't include Ukraine, uh, as we look down the barrel and see the potential for a severe recession— Uh, occasioned by the fact that we need to take drastic action to stop an inflation that looks like it's uh, rising at approximately 8% year over year, uh, with the punishing effects that that occurs. And just another example of the lack of staff um, servicing of the president there was no way that they just discovered and Mr. Biden just found out about the uh, shortage of formula.
1: Oh, don't yeah, that, and, that situation. And by the way, apparently it's getting into the, you know, and, and I don't want to make this a controversy, but it's getting into the border and it's getting into the, I guess, the detention centers or whatnot. And of course they need baby formula, but why are American families suffering more so than— The border, it just doesn't seem right, Godfrey.
2: Well, because the American government has a legal obligation that once you take somebody into custody or put it under uh, official uh, protection, uh, they have to be cared for. They can't be starved. They, They must be cared for in a humane fashion. And because there are a lot of babies involved, One arm of the U.S. government is using its imperial power to uh, provide uh, formula when uh, it's so scarce everywhere else. But I'll tell you another fault. Neither the U.S. government nor any of the media, they're all gnashing their teeth over uh, empty shelves, over parents who are desperate looking for where they might be able to obtain it, asking relatives in other cities to search their local Target or local Walmart for formula, and not anybody has suggested anything to these poor parents. Well, if you can't find it, if you don't have another can of formula to open, if your baby is crying because it needs formula and the mother cannot generate any more breast milk? How do you make up for this deficit? I can't believe that in a country of 333 million people with all our scientists, pediatricians, nutritionists, and everybody else, we have to rely on a bunch of reporters who are only interested in reporting the empty shells and the crying babies and the mothers saying, I spent four hours looking... And nobody is offering any solutions, at least any solutions that I've been able to read. Anyway, we've drifted off the subject. Mm -hmm. I love talking with you, but I've now gone just beyond your 20-minute limit. No, it's fine.
1: This has been been so important because, I don't know, Godfrey Harris, I feel like not many people are talking about preserving the democracy. In fact, I think many people would rather see it— collapse, and I hate to say it that way, but I just, the rah-rah American feel has left our our shores, and it's, I don't know where it is, but you're trying to keep it alive, and that's what I love, why I love having you on, and as we even get to this year's July 4th, I'd love to bring you back to talk more.
2: I would, uh I would be happy to, and by the way, I think that,
1: um oh, I never got to ask you this, we don't um, do
2: it, we do- we don't do enough, and maybe that's the subject for a discussion uh, before July 4th. But we don't do enough to talk about what is democracy. All we talk about is the Declaration of Independence, which, bless America, nobody has gotten beyond the uh, first paragraph, um, and then they don't understand what is the difference between between the declaration of independence and the constitution of the united states why do we have two different documents and what does one do for the society that the other doesn't vice versa and why did we which 99% of americans don't understand and is vital to the abortion issue the bill of rights came 2 years after the ratification of the Constitution, and just with uh, the abortion rights, the 14th Amendment, which wasn't even in the Bill of Rights, but the 14th Amendment, which added in uh, 1868 to, um, uh, to codify the changes brought about by the Civil War. In other words, if Americans, all of whom have graduated civics in high school, but they need refreshing as to how all these things are linked. Won't hurt them, might even interest them, but if we can get a small coterie of people to remember the basis for why democracy is important, how it works, what are its principal founding elements, then um, July 4th, 2022 might be worth uh, remembering.
1: Well, let's make it something to remember. Let's make America still worth you know honoring and celebrating. And in that discussion, I'd love to de- break it down between democracy and republic, because I know we are a republic as well, and I feel like there are some differences. But one last thing, about well, two last things. Going back to the petrol pause, the gas... Are you still encouraging that, or have you kind of dropped that off because of the numbers, or if we do still do that, is that a way to get gas? You know, we still want to get gas prices down. It's not going anywhere. So, what's the best way to do that? What's the best way to make people aware? Hey, your gas—you don't have to pay for this. We can do something different. Uh,
2: I think if we uh, if we aimed at July Fourth as a day not to buy uh, or the uh, July 4th, I think, is, the uh, not quite sure, but maybe a Tuesday this year.
1: How about Memorial uh, Day weekend?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, th- we are not uh, promoting it. It takes a lot of money and a lot of energy uh, to move the needle in this country. And unless you get a, a celebrity early on Uh, to back it with energy and goes on all the talk shows and does all the things that uh, bring attention to a subject, Uh, it doesn't work. We did bring the price down, but I don't think our uh, petrol pause uh, had much to do with, in all honesty, the uh, reduction in price. Uh, There's no doubt that if we continue uh, to... Um, conserve our use of fossil fuel, it will have a terrific impact on uh, the Russians and it will help everybody else, including, of course, the Ukrainians. But for now, we are not uh, promoting a further petrol pause. We are aiming at finding those mechanisms where
1: Americans can link up with Ukrainians in support of democracy. So I look forward to talking. Well, with one you. last and, thing, because you mentioned uh, you mentioned that. Uh, yeah. Did the Senate? Did the, did the senatorial trip to Ukraine accomplish anything? I mean, we saw McConnell out there, and it sort of just seemed like a photo op. But I, I don't know if they actually accomplished anything going out there to talk to Zelensky.
0: They
2: absolutely did. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what you what you do is uh, by sending them out to Ukraine uh, by. Uh, their public participation, uh, it guarantees that the United States will continue its high-level and expensive support of the uh, Ukrainian war effort, and that seems to be having a lot of success. Now, we learn most of what we learn from British intelligence, who do an assessment every week as to how the war is going. If you rely strictly on the American media, you're not quite so sure. But apparently, the Ukrainians are being very successful at pushing the Russians back, Uh, and the Russians uh, need to regroup because they have not uh, done as well militarily. They still haven't got Mariupol, as an example. Uh, They sent some Bear rockets into Odessa, mm. but they're not even close to conquering Odessa. They've given up on Kiev. Otherwise, uh, neither Mrs. Biden nor, uh, although she didn't go to Kiev, but uh, Mitch McConnell and his coterie would not have gone to Kiev. So I think uh, the the benefit uh, for the United States in Mitch McConnell and his delegation reaching. Kyiv and coming back is they are now guaranteed supporters. They are in the bag. And from the United States' standpoint, we will continue to support uh, Ukraine to the extent they need it. And uh, all you need to do to understand why this is a success is why the Russians haven't tried to interdict the resupply of all these weapons. Um Uh, We keep flying them in. We keep uh, letting them in on the train. And I still think the United States is too cautious that the United States could do a Berlin 1948 airlift into Kiev. And I don't think the Russians would uh, threaten us. And I think we got a lot of volunteer pilots who would fly those C-130s into Kiev airport. Uh, to test whether the Russians uh, would threaten us. What I'm saying is I believe the Biden administration ought to be more aggressive than it is. I think it's too frightened. I think its reliance totally on being in step with NATO and its allies uh, is weak, because look what Erdogan did by merely saying he has some doubts about whether he would approve Finland coming in to NATO. He's using it because Finland harbored uh, many of the uh, ethnic groups that Erdogan has tried to uh, prevent from having an uh, independent uh, area within uh, Turkey. Anyway, totally different subject. You get me back to my Foreign Service days.
1: Sure. Um That's right. You were you and you were in the uh, uh That's right, you were you were in the White House at one point. I, I think you were in, at, you were, I, were I you was, an in House, I was
2: also a US diplomat for many years and uh, had a lot to say when uh although of <laughs> not much benefit. I had a letter <laughs> in the uh, Wall Street Journal the other day which talked about a change in how Foreign Service officers are being chosen. And uh,
1: uh we well, you know what. Let's save that for calendar. another podcast. I'll ask you about that in the next couple weeks, and we can we can talk about that. How about that? I, I would love to have you back.
2: That's a terrific, and thank you so much for your patience. Thank your audience for their patience in listening.
1: You've got a lot of uh, wisdom, and I love having it on my podcast. Godfrey Harris, thanks so much for joining, and we'll talk to you real soon.
2: Thank you, Alex.
1: Bye. Take care. And this has been my uh, update on Ukraine. And, uh, you know, we haven't talked about it as much on here either, but we, we want to make it still that, yes, there are things going on as the our own home is in crisis mode. Uh, it seems like every day, so too is everywhere else, and, and we got to keep an eye on everything. So what so we're going to do here on Alex Care Podcast, yes, we'll talk to you soon.